Lynch, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we focus on the politics of food, specifically bread. We talked to Jose Ciro Martinez about his new book, States of Subsistence, just published by Stanford University Press. And then we have a conversation with Jessica Barnes about Egypt and, and the politics of bread there. This is the last regularly scheduled episode of the Maps Middle East Political Science Podcast for the academic year. We've had 33 episodes, over 100 guests, by far our most ambitious season. We might have some special episodes over the course of the summer, but if not, we look forward to seeing you again in September with a whole new season of books, articles, and conversations about issues of interest to people working in the field of Middle East political science. Thanks for listening. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Jose Ciro Martinez, a lecturer at the University of York, author of the new Stanford University Press book, States of Subsistence, Politics of Bread in Contemporary Jordan. Jose, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, You know, no one usually thinks about the politics of bread, but, you know, when I was living in Jordan, You know, I had a lot of the experiences that you talk about in this book of bakeries and then this this bread. And so tell me how you turned this into a book and why. So uh, I'm hoping your experience rings too true true to a lot of the listeners and the readers. So um, the book is really an ethnography of the Jordanian state. And it tries to examine the state in places where it's sort of rarely dissected and displayed. You know, we're used to people studying parliaments, elections, and other uh, sort of venues, but rarely do we think about these routine uh, sites where welfare is distributed, where people, uh, yeah, where people uh, get or achieve their sort of subsistence. So the central question of the book is uh, how does the state maintain its solidity, its inevitability, through what practices and modes of address? And as you mentioned, I tackle the question through the prism of Hobbes Arabi, Arabic or pita bread, and the welfare program that ensures its discounted provision. And so one of the reasons I decided to tackle it through this prism is I was sort of frustrated by the way uh, welfare services were studied by political scientists. I thought they far too frequently elided the sort of or ignored the objects, people and ideas that compose such services. They were seen sort of as inputs or outputs. But what quickly became apparent to me after several visits to the bakery, I sort of worked in a bakery when I did a homestay in Damascus 10 years earlier before this project even got off the ground is that subsidized bread is this sort of living and lively thing, something that needs and demands sort of close study. And while the welfare program that composes it is really just an amalgam of socio-material practices, its regularity, uniformity, and arrangement create the effect of a structure, or this is one of my arguments, the state, that seems to exist outside this world of practice, separate from the society organizes, manages, and dominates. And so I thought uh, after several sort of uh, initial visits to the bakery and how lively of a pace I thought it was, I thought, why don't we see what a book, what it started as a PhD sort of dissertation, what a book that focuses on bread could illuminate and help us uh, sort of understand how come bread never lacks when so many other things do? What are the politics of this food? There's so many things going on in the book, uh, everything from the, you know, the detailed discussion of bureaucracy and, and you talk to top, you know, ministers and the like. But I think the most striking thing that people will notice is that you actually spent a year or more working in a bakery, about a year. So why, why did you do that? Why was that important for you in terms of producing this book? So I was uh, sort of frustrated by a lot of the political science I was reading. I was heavily inspired by uh, scholars such as Lisa Wadeen, Jillian Schwedler, and others 
who took a more ethnographic uh, sort of uh, focus. And I went around and asked for permission to sort of observe bakeries. And most of these places, most of these, yeah, most of the bakers are quite small, tight space. And uh, after a few visits, I realized very quickly that my offer would be more appealing to the owners if I also offered to work in them. And when uh, I sort of received their responses, I thought, wow, okay, this might be even more enlightening because I'll you know, really get my hands uh, dirty and have a sort of uh, yeah, first person account of what's going on in the day-to-day. -day. It'll be different than just sort of walking around and asking questions, not better, not worse, definitely different. And so I thought, why not, uh, why not work there? Why not spend some time there? I spent most of my time in three very different bakeries, one in sort of a very marginalized area, one that people could classify as middle-class and one in a wealthier area, even though it serves uh, poor and working-class customers. And I was sort of entranced. I uh, had a great time. And I think uh, the best books and the best PhD sort of come from projects when authors are really invested and there are various types of investment, but mine felt particularly sort of rewarding going every day, the camaraderie, the sort of uh, spirit de corps of the bakery workers. And so I thought, uh, why not? And I was also yeah, heavily inspired by a few books, especially like Laquan's Body and Soul, where he sort of becomes a boxer. And I thought, yeah, this uh, seems like uh, it'd be a different way of approaching the question and hopefully illuminating. And it only came to me much later that I should be writing about the bakery. The PhD actually didn't include the chapters where I discussed sort of the, the daily work. And my examiners during the PhD, when I asked them for sort of advice, when it came to turning it into the book said, well, you spent all this time there working. Why don't you actually talk about it? And you know, the few years of uh, processing the work after the PhD was submitted, I thought, yeah, this is the most um, different, the most uh, unique part of what I did there. And so why not center some of those uh, experiences in the chapters? And, and it's really interesting. And Louis Vuitton is exactly who I thought of as well as so I started reading it. Um, and uh, that made an impression on me in graduate school as well. Um, although I never went and became a boxer. <laughs> a dream that we all wish uh, sort of we had done, I thought, yeah. I would have liked to have done the boxing too, but uh, the bakery, I guess, physically taxing in a very different way, but uh, physically taxing nonetheless. Yeah, so maybe let's take a step back. And so you, you make a contention in the book that in a sense, things like the bakery are one of the main kind of points of contact between ordinary citizens and the state. And so walk us through this a little bit about why bread and why bakeries are such a good way of getting into this like level of the lived experience of the state. Absolutely. So um, during my first few visits to Jordan, I did uh, homestays, the typical sort of experience when you're trying to improve uh, language skills. And uh, there was a lot of, you know, one of the, the questions I often went to was, uh, what's your relationship with the government? What do you think about the state? And then sort of slowly, I realized that one of the most recurring encounters was uh, the most obvious one, the daily visit to the bakery, what we were discussing sort of earlier, your, your routine visit, sometimes once, on other occasions, twice a day. And uh, whenever bread was not there at the bakery, there was a palpable sense of disgust, of anger, because a lot of people can't get by when uh, the bread is not available. And so I thought, okay, there's some pretty great works on Jordanian parliament, a number of wonderful works on uh, identity questions, Jordan, yours, Joseph Masad's. And so I thought, okay, let's do uh, something different. The work on nationalism and identity has sort of, it's more well-established and let's think about the state through the routine, less through those more well-studied sites. And then when I thought about the routine, you know, there are traffic lights, there's taxation, there's all sorts of uh, daily encounters with the state. But to me, the bakery was the sort of most enticing one because to my mind, it was the most important. And your subsistence depends on a 
the exercise of political authority, then it's sort of inevitable that you uh, confront it on a day-to-day -day basis. And part of what I've been sort of invested in methodologically is thinking about the unglamorous and the unspectacular. It's become less sort of popular in political science, but you know, there are a few sort of key scholars, Asad Fayyat, whose work was sort of very inspirational, like to think about the unspectacular rather than the sort of glamorous, the events we're used to studying as political scientists or what people think of traditionally as politics. And so I thought, why not uh, think about the routine? And then when I thought, let's center the routine, then inevitably it became bread. Now, we're, this is getting a little bit ahead um, of, uh, this comes at the end of your book, but I think it might be interesting to talk about it now is, you know, you kind of, the traditional approach here would be to find the moral economy of, of bread. And yet, in your talking to people, you came away, you know, rather conflicted about that. Exactly. So I, I have a, an article out in Ismus a few years ago on the moral economy of bread. It's the very traditional way of studying it, uh, sort of inspired by James Scott. But then the more times I went back uh, to Jordan, the more conflicting answers I found. And then I sort of did a deep dive into sort of uh, Alistair McIntyre's work, a few others who think about sort of philosophies of morality. And I came to the conclusion that the moral economies of people were quite different. And so they were moral economies rather than a moral economy. And Erica Simmons has done some work on this. Bread is always central. People have different ways of describing it as crucial to their subsistence, of ascribing it meaning. But those sort of value systems that surround bread are different. Sometimes they come from sort of communist outlooks. Sometimes they come from very religious uh, ones, often drawing on Islam. And so I couldn't come to a conclusion. So I just thought uh, maybe the question I'm asking is wrong. Maybe I need to think about the way bread is centered in debates about the state and about politics rather than trying to unpack moral economies because mm -hmm. they were very diverse. And, and I guess uh, I shouldn't have been surprised, but if you travel to most countries in the world, people ascribe meaning to the same good for various different reasons, be it healthcare in the US, be it healthcare in the UK, a place I'm more familiar with. And so I thought I shouldn't be doing the moral economies thing. I can't come to any sort of uh, robust conclusions. And so why not think about the way bread is discussed vis-a-vis -vis public debates? Why do people ascribe it importance? And then to center that rather than the moral economies. So a big part of the book uh, takes up the actual creation of this bread subsidy in, you know, in the early 1970s and, um, and kind of the construction of a state apparatus, quite sophisticated one, to deliver this bread. Walk us through this a bit. How, why, and where the Jordanian state responds to this need for bread. So I was really intrigued uh, by this uh, sort of historical moment because it hadn't been written about all that thoroughly. A lot of people have written about Black September. A lot of people have written about the 1948 war, the 1967 one, its impact on Jordan. But when I kept on people asking people about the origins of the bread subsidy, they sent me to a few uh, sort of a few people, a few former ministers, a few bakers who have been around for a long time. And they kept on talking about 1974. 1974, there was this sort of um, unparalleled mutiny by members of the army, the traditional backbone, what many consider the traditional backbone of the, the Jordanian state apparatus. And it was about inflation and food prices, specifically sugar, but flour and wheat also came into the, the sort of picture. And there, I went to the archives and sort of tried to see what the deliberations were like in this historical moment and very quickly found that it was a sort of unprecedented moment of deliberation where the king is involved, everyone's sort of discussing how do we fix this problem of rising prices, one that we're sort of the whole world is confronting again right now. And the response was to make this very elaborate system where prices were controlled. I mean, the bread subsidy is one of the few remaining legacies of this period, but uh, curtains, frozen chicken, formula for babies, all uh, a whole set of consumer goods were regulated and controlled by the state. Bread and a few others were delivered uh, and supplied directly. 
but I thought uh, we've written about the sort of big uh, population transfers moments of, um, of radical change in the demographics of, uh, of the Jordanian population, but we rarely write about the way subsistence was ensured for all these people living in the country. And so I thought this might be far more important than we've been giving it credit for. It also establishes a whole set of links between the population that wasn't very convinced of the legitimacy or the propriety of the Hashemite regime, as many people know after Black September. And after talking to a few scholars, talking to a few politicians, a lot of them pointed to this moment. They say, this is what tied a lot of people to the regime, cheap goods, um, a state that provided for you on the day to day, and that it was far more important that had, than many had theorized in the past. And so I thought, let's, what do, let's center this moment rather than making it a secondary part of the story. And here, uh, Pete Moore's work was quite crucial. And I thought, okay, let's center it. The archives were full of interesting sort of vignettes that readers will get to sink their teeth into. But uh, basically 1974, big army mutiny, the regime uh, ponders, reflects and responds through a very elaborate system at a time when there weren't that many uh, welfare provisions provided to people. You had a very rapidly growing population. And so I thought, okay, this moment to me seems quite crucial. Readers will, will decide if I convince them. But I thought it was a sort of fascinating and under-reflected upon moment. So they, they create this ministry of supply and they actually you know, put a lot of effort into building up a, what seems to be a fairly competent um, state in that one limited area. This was to me, the, the you've put your finger on it. I mean, uh, this to me was always a perplexing about, part about the bread subsidy. I mean, people complained about hospitals in Jordan. They complained about schools. They complained about all sorts of typical government services. But the one that I heard the fewest complaints about, although the most vociferous when it lacked, was the bread subsidy. And so I thought, what, what would happen if I traced this back historically? And what we found is that uh, when people care and when people get angry when a certain good is not provided and when their families depend on it, then it appears that states really care and really put a lot of effort into getting things right. So to this day, and now the Ministry of Supply has been eaten up and part of a, a larger ministry called the Industry, Trade and Supply, it's uh, incredible. I mean, the amount of um, efficient uh, uh, sort of bureaucrats who work on this on a day-to-day -day and care deeply about the outcomes because they know it, it matters because they have neighbors because their own families might depend on the bread subsidy. And the truth is that ever since 1974, it's been one of the most successful and, um, and efficient, I'd say, uh, programs, welfare services provided by the Jordanian government. And so you trace this like from the, from the point of import um, of the wheat all the way through the delivery to the bakeries themselves. Exactly. So I try to offer the readers sort of a whole... Uh, the whole process, the supply line, if you will, the supply chain mm -hmm. from beginning to end. And it's changed uh, over the decades, but its bases, its fundaments remain uh, quite similar. And one of the, the sort of, uh, I'd say, tragic uh, side effects has been that the flooding of uh, Jordan, because a lot of the wheat initially came from the USA programs from the European Union, meant that it was no longer profitable for Jordanian farmers to grow wheat. So Jordan went from growing 40 to 50% of its own wheat to growing 3%. Wow. And it's because a lot of the farmers, um, it was no longer profitable because they were being, uh, they had to compete with uh, basically donated American and European aid. And so they decided to grow olives. They decided to urbanize land and sell it. So to make construct uh, apartment buildings and industri industrial sectors, industrial zones. And um, so, yeah, I tried to sort of trace this history and at the same time, give the reader a sense of how it is exactly that the wheat arrives at the bakery. So chapter three discusses the making of the bread itself, but in the intro and through chapter one and two, I try to 
show the reader how it is that this beat arrives and all the efforts that go into a program that we often just see the end product at the bakery itself, but it contains a whole ton of other sort of fascinating possibilities. And the, the imagery that came to my mind in, in reading all this is very much kind of, it's almost like the skeleton of the state, right? You can actually, you know, you see them penetrating every neighborhood, every, uh, every you know, kind of uh, uh, meal practically. Um, in a sense, you know, we often think about states as being weak, but what you're showing here is the actual almost physical presence of the state. Absolutely, yeah. They can be strong when they want to be, I guess would be, uh, would be my short answer to that. Yeah, so you're speaking very much to chapters two and four. I mean, I trace uh, amongst, uh, through a set of oral histories and some archival work, what it meant for people all of a sudden to have their subsistence practices replaced. So people used to bake bread uh, at home. They used to have a communal oven in the, in the neighborhood. And then all of a sudden bakeries started dotting up all across the country. And so what does it mean? How do people reflect upon all of a sudden their elementary patterns, their gastronomic patterns being radically transformed by the state? And the other one were places like Ma'an and Aqaba, which uh, I speak to in one chapter. Aqaba is sort of a free economic zone. Its premise is very little state involvement. Ma'an is a place with a sort of very oppositional relationship to uh, government authority. And in Ma'an, uh, during one of my first visits, no police cars would traverse the city center at risk of being stoned. You saw very little in terms of police presence, but uh, the flower truck came in and it came in uh, every week. The bread inspectors were always uh, around, let's say for their weekly inspections of the bakeries. And when I asked uh, people about this, they found it obvious. They were like, what are you talking about? Of course they're gonna come, of course they're gonna be here. The state can mess up a lot of other things, but it can't mess with, uh, with our daily bread. And so I thought it spoke to exactly what you, what you mentioned, a sort of skeletal presence, a spectral presence even, that it's there and ensures uh, that certain things arrive, even when, it's, uh, even when the police can't enter the center of a particular city or town. Now you mentioned the bread inspectors, and that's actually a really interesting part of the book, uh, because that really is like the lived experience of the agents of the state. And you follow them around and you watch as they try and figure out each bakery, are they cheating on the subsidy? And so tell us a little bit about that and kind of the interactions that you see as kind of composing the state. Absolutely. I mean, so uh, I was used to reading about boring bureaucrats, right? The way we tend to depict them are paper pushers. They're not particularly uh, sympathetic to citizens on the ground. And after spending some time at the, at the ministry, I sort of asked if I could go around with these inspection teams. Luckily, they said, yeah, sure. And what I realized is that they were there were exceptions, but a whole host of very committed inspectors whose ultimate goal was to ensure that there was enough bread. Now, how they went about ensuring that outcome was rather fascinating. Sometimes they overlooked someone who might be stealing electricity because it was a very poor neighborhood. Sometimes they find a very wealthy bakery owner who was clearly cheating the system using subsidized flour for non-subsidized goods. And so uh, the way these uh, bureaucrats went about composing the program and uh, the daily sort of uh, deliveries and ensuring those outcomes, I tried to sort of bring through ethnographically how committed these bureaucrats are to positive outcomes. Now, there are bureaucrats who are paper pushers, there are bureaucrats who prey on uh, citizens like there are in any country, but these were a set of people that I found incredibly compelling. And so hopefully readers get a sense of the, the dilemmas that are posed on the day-to-day -day and how it is exactly that they wrestle with conundrums. I mean, when someone's stealing electricity, do you shut down the bakery if it means a thousand people might not have bread? And so I try to bring to life the way they reflect yeah. upon these sort of problems and conundrums. That was one of my favorite anecdotes in the book where um, 
I'll, I'll tell it so you can explain it. But, but basically this was the one where, um, they were, they look at the guy's electric, his electric bill and like, well, you only spent two dinar on, on electricity last month. Clearly you're taking the subsidized bread and selling it. And finally the guy's like, no, I'm stealing the electricity. Exactly. So one of the ways uh, inspectors, so there's no easy way to figure out if people are misusing subsidized flour. I try to portray that in the book. You know, we like to think of bureaucracies as having statistics that confirm sort of very hard numbers. And we often rely on these as political scientists for our data sets. And what I realized at the ministry is that it's a lot more messy. So as you said, one of the ways they go about seeing if people are not producing bread and selling on the subsidized flour is through electricity bills. And so on one occasion, uh, they're telling me this uh, story from the past that they think is sort of a, a wonderful reflection of how clever this one inspector is. He's one of the more senior inspectors, very much loved by his colleagues. And they can't explain. They're looking around the bakery. They're saying it's full. He's clearly producing bread. Everyone in the neighborhood speaks highly of the person, but then he has a, an electricity bill for two dollars. He must be cheating it. So then the inspector goes outside, looks at the electricity cables and says, okay, there's clearly something going on here. And rather than, uh, than have his bakery closed down because he also cares about his customers, the bakery owner says, no, I'm, you know, I'm stealing electricity. So at that moment, the bakers sort of have to decide, okay, what do we do with this bakery owner? And they say, you know, sort out the electricity as quickly as you can. And basically they look the other way in order for people to have access to subsidized bread in this neighborhood. No, and that's it's an interesting thing. And one of the things which um, comes out in the chapter where you leave Amman is, and you go to Karak and Ma'an and Aqaba is the, the variation in the encounter between the state and the locale. Exactly. So one of my frustrations, and I wish I had spent more time outside of the capital, one of my frustrations with sort of um, the literature on Jordan, if you will, and a lot of the Middle East, is that they're often very capital-centric, right? Mm -hmm. Researchers go for various reasons. They end up living in capital cities. They spend a lot of time interviewing uh, sort, of a, sort of elite actors. And uh, this is no longer the case as much, but I thought, okay, let's uh, get out of the capital, see what different sites and different places, how they interact with the state. And yes, what became very obvious uh, to me, and Jillian Schwedler's work also speaks to this for those interested in such questions, that uh, interactions with the state vary spatially, quite drastically in the way Karakis or Maanis think about the state, relate to it, their uh, ways of portraying it, if you will, are, are quite different and that those places are as worthy of study. I think you would get a very Amman-centric picture if you just stayed in the capital, even if you went to diverse places in the capital. And so, yeah, one of the most rewarding parts that I came to quite late in the projects and wish I'd done more of was uh, getting out of the capital and seeing the way different places mm -hmm. related to the state. It's pretty well understood at this point, I think, the ways in which the very dependence of the people of, of these Transjordanian villages in the and cities in the south, the way they depended on public service, I, I'm sorry, on public sector employment and the like, um, they really are the ones most hit by the neoliberal turn, slashing services, slashing the state. And I think you actually do a nice job of capturing some of the resentment that that engenders. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's been written about at this point and uh, quite thoroughly, as you said. And uh, what I tried to capture was a bit of the ambiguity and their ambivalence when it came to the state. So it's not just that we hate the state or that we wish it did, uh, that we wish it got off our backs. It's also that we want it closer. It's not necessarily uh, oppositional. You know, Man especially is often portrayed as a hub of ISIS, as a hub of a sort of a bunch of radical Islamists. And when I went, I got very ambivalent answers. People saying, we want less of the police. We don't need to get beaten up at protests, but we do want bread. We want hospitals for our kids and education 
hospitals for all of us, education for our, our kids. And so I thought, let's think about the ambivalence here. Let's dwell, if you will, in the ambivalence rather than portraying them as fully dependent on the state or fully accepting of their role in public sector employment. Let's uh, capture that sort of hazy middle, if you will. And bread was one of the ways to sort of illuminate that because in many cases, people found the bread subsidy to be a very effective government program, even as they denounced all these other things that were lacking. And then throughout the time you're in the in Jordan doing your research, people are publicly debating uh, the these ideas of lifting the budget subsidy and the IMF pushing for it, the World Bank pushing for it, um, and uh, you know people uh, you know really arguing about this and uh, becomes quite a political issue. Absolutely. So one of the most uh, rewarding parts of uh, the fieldwork was that I often explained my project to sort of other researchers who I met along the way who were working in Jordan, and they weren't quite convinced. They're like, yeah, bread, can you really write a whole book on that? And then whenever I would talk to sort of uh, Jordanians or people I met on uh, you know, the daily sort of walks around the town or at the bakery, they, they said, yeah, of course, this is obvious. This deserves a book. It could be an encyclopedia if you wanted to. And so one of the reasons was because it was constantly in the news. So when I was there 2013, 2014, the prime minister was getting pushed by the World Bank to change it. So, you know, recurring uh, talks on the, on the radio, radio shows, which in chapter six, I sort of talk about this very famous radio show where the bread subsidy was discussed. So it was constantly in the news, which made it really easy to introduce myself, to introduce the research and ask people. And bread had that sort of uh, magic of not being the, it has, a, there's politics to it, but the, the surface level, there are all sorts of things that bread, all sorts of places bread can lead you in conversation. And so everyone was willing to talk about it and to condemn the IMF or to agree with the IMF or uh, to denounce the prime minister, to agree with the prime minister. And so, yeah, I went back a few times, 2018 again, 2019, and every time it was back uh, in the news. And so it was kind of great uh, for the research. And one of those sort of central issues, I mean, people, in Jordan often described bread as uh, the last red line. It's now been crossed because they have uh, cut parts of the bread subsidy since. And so, yeah, uh, sort of very fecund uh, for conversations and for research and, you know, a hot button issue like oil prices in America, yeah. like the NHS in the UK, it's always on people's tongues. Everyone's happy to talk about it. And one last question is uh, kind of about kind of method and some of the underlying uh, theoretical uh, questions that the book raises. And uh, any, if people read the book, and especially in the early chapters, they'll be struck by the kind of strong case you make for studying things like smell and routine and kind of this very, very embodied uh, experience. And you make an argument that that's a better way of grappling with what the state means than kind of more traditional political science approaches to state capacity and the like. So explain that and explain, you know, why researchers should pay attention to these things. Sure. So I guess uh, two major points. The first one is that uh, my view of the state, so the theoretical premise of uh, the work is quite different than mainstream political science. So I think of the state as an effect of power, as something that comes into being through practices. I don't think there is something or some place that we can automatically call the state. We have to see the way practices conjure, produce, constantly reproduce the state. So that would be the first one. And if readers are willing to accept the premise, at least at the outset of the book, and give me a chance to, to prove to them why it might be useful, then how do we think about those practices? There are various ways one could do it, but I think the most rewarding is to think about the routine, the ordinary, what Lefebvre calls the sort of the everyday. And I think it, political scientists have neglected it, especially over the last 15, 20 years. There's an older tradition with, with James Scott at the forefront that are invested in these sorts of questions. But uh, I thought uh, rather than study parliaments, rather than just speak to elites, 
not that that work is not valuable and necessary, let's try to bring something different to um, the scholarship, to the literature. And I think uh, there's a lot to be gained from uh, speaking with people and uh, voicing and bringing to life some of their concerns rather than speaking above them or just sort of neglecting their outlooks too. And so I would have felt uh, irresponsible if my book didn't uh, speak to all the stories that I was told, all the anecdotes, all the data, all the the, the information. And so, yeah, I mean, as you said, the, the, the introduction, the preface, it is a plea of sorts to political scientists to sort of wrestle with these uh, routine interactions because I think they're often more illuminating than studying one-off events and uh, flying in and flying out and spending more time with uh, our people, the people and the places that we study, the interlocutors. And I'm hoping if anything, the book inspires uh, graduate students who are about to head into the field and are thinking about different ways they can approach their work that this is definitely not the only way, but it might be one way or a possible combination of uh, methods that one could use that is uh, useful and fruitful for, uh, for people studying, not just the Middle East, but all sorts of uh, other places where political authority is constantly being reproduced during the day to day. But contra kind of the, 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 the Wikipedia version of James Scott, um, not the actual James Scott, but the way he's often like uh, shortened, um, you, you, don't, you don't limit this to everyday acts of resistance, right? I mean, that's one thing which is going on, but there's a lot more going on in these routine encounters. Exactly. So this is uh, chapter five, which might be my favorite chapter, which discusses the sort of tactics at the bakery, how people go around, go about um, using uh, state resources, using public resources in order to make sure that their customers are fed. And what I found is that I went with the sort of James Scott prism asking them, is this resistance? Is this oppositional? And they kept on coming back to me and saying, no, we're just either trying to get by, we're trying to feed uh, our customers, we're trying to make sure people can subsist. And so I thought it would be unfair of me if I took their words and took their information and turned it into a very different story. And what I realized as well is that, uh, you know, we have a very often sort of liberal premises that color the way we study places where politics looks very different. And so opposition might not be necessarily going to a protest or voting in an election. It might mean an ambivalent act of reappropriating subsidized flour for another outcome. And so if, uh, one of the things I was trying to push, especially political scientists uh, to do in uh, that chapter is to think not just about resistance and acquiescence, but to think about that weird middle where people are trying to get by, trying to help those around them and aren't necessarily acting in opposition. Sometimes it's businessmen trying to make a buck. Sometimes it's uh, marginalized small business owners who are trying to help those around them. And there's a lot to be mined there. That's not often discussed maybe because it's less sexy, it's less appealing. It doesn't uh, speak to the type of, you know, uh, resistance act that Scott is so powerful in portraying. And so I tried to capture, yeah, that, that middle because I find it's uh, quite interesting. And here, yeah, Lisa Woodin's work is sort of foundational, especially the recent book where she's not really examining the opposition nor the hardcore supporters, but you know, everyone in that weird middle who's sort of uh, trying to navigate uh, how to get uh, through the day-to-day. We've been speaking to Jose Ciro Martinez about his new book, States of Subsistence, really original creative book. Um, and uh, thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been uh, it's been fantastic. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and in this segment, we're joined by Jessica Barnes of the University of South Carolina. She's the author of Cultivating the Nile, Everyday Politics of Water in Egypt, and she has a forthcoming book called Staple Security, Bread and Wheat in Egypt. Um, Jessica, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, you know, Maybe we could start by just 
looking at the issues around the, the book that you've just finished in terms of uh, kind of bread and wheat in Egypt. I mean, as, as, as everyone knows, the Ukraine war has caused a, a big disruption in global wheat supplies. Egypt's heavily reliant on imports. How does this look to you as someone who's been studying uh, the politics of, of wheat and bread in Egypt for all these years? Yeah, well, I think it's definitely a, a huge concern. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Egypt uh, imports about half its wheat supply and its major supplies are Russia and the Ukraine. So um, this is a, a big concern for Egypt. I think it th there's a couple of things. I mean, I think one, at the current moment, I don't think there's any kind of crisis point in Egypt, mm -hmm. partly because the Egyptian government's in the process of buying the Egyptian harvest. So they have a large domestic supply for the next kind of couple of months. Um, they also have substantial stocks of wheat. So th there is no imminent crisis in Egypt. And I think such is the political significance of the wheat supply and bread supply um, that I very much doubt that they're going to kind of run out of wheat. I think what is more probably the case is that they will have to look elsewhere if the, the conflict um, continues in that region. And while there are, uh, there's plenty of wheat elsewhere in the world for them to buy, uh, the issue will be that it will be more expensive for them, uh, largely because of shipping costs. So one of the reasons why Egypt, you know, used to buy a lot of, get a lot of wheat from uh, America, for example, one of the reasons why it's turned to primarily Black Sea countries is because the shipping costs are just so much lower. So um, how that plays out will be an interesting question. I mean, I'm sure it's something that Egyptian policymakers are, are hugely worried about at the moment, just because the volume they're importing, um, it's such a huge cost as it is, let alone if prices go up. Now, there's a long history here of how Egypt became dependent upon uh, imported wheat, not as dependent as a lot of the other Middle Eastern countries, but still a real shift towards import, uh, importing food historically. Can you tell us a little bit about, about the kind of the history of this and how Egypt got here? Yes. Well, it's, I mean, so historically, I mean, Egypt has always been a, a major producer of wheat. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, this uh, sort of through the 19th century and into the early 20th century, the kind of balance between producing and exporting versus importing wheat sort of fluctuated on time as different um, sort of administrations took slightly different kind of stances on that in terms of what they were promoting. And um, at different points in time, governments have either kind of promoted or impeded exports of wheat. Um, so there was a time when Egypt was producing so much it was exporting a lot uh, since the kind of early 20th century, Egypt has stopped exporting wheat. And then it's really largely been a function um, or been related a lot to kind of consumption levels. Um, so Egypt has continued to produce a lot of wheat. It's producing more and more wheat, actually. Uh, yields have kind of gone up substantially over the 20th century. Um, but it's largely a, a kind of function of the very high kind of consumption levels that have meant that it's also continued to import a lot of wheat. Egypt does not export any wheat at the moment. So, mm -hmm. And so then there's also, you know, this is one of the countries where you have subsidized bread is one of the major staples of, of, of the diet. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the subsidy is expensive. Um, yeah. And so in terms of like the, the current like political economy of bread, um, how do you see this in terms of uh, where this all fits into the broader equation? Yeah, I mean, it is very expensive, this subsidy. And um, this is something that kind of external commentators, 
economists have been saying for many decades doesn't really kind of make economic sense. Um, I suppose I see that as an anthropologist, uh, I see the bread subsidy in a slightly different way. You know, I see it from the perspective of people for whom this bread really is a lifeline. Uh, you know, not in terms of necessarily that they would sort of starve without it, but that in a context where everything else is getting so much more expensive and day-to-day -day life is such an effort, people are earning very tiny wages, everything's getting more expensive, that this bread, it's such a sort of fundamental part of people's day-to-day -day life. Because, you know, with if you have a kind of huge stack of bread, then all you need for a meal is a very small amount of cheese or, you know, a couple of olives or... Um, you know, a couple of eggs and a meal can become a meal for a family of eight if you have a big stack of bread. So, yes, it's very expensive, but I think it also is so vitally important to large chunks of the uh, Egyptian population, not just the very, very poor, but also the kind of lower middle classes for whom they're kind of really on the brink of, of poverty. And, and that's kind of by far the majority of the Egyptian population. I mean, that's about sort of 70, 80 percent of Egyptians are in that either a very poor situation or a kind of precarious situation. So, um, so I, I guess, you know, whereas an economist might say, this doesn't really make sense, the government's got to move away from that. And, you know, obviously, President Sisi has been making some remarks over the last year intermittently about how this, this bread subsidy doesn't make sense. You know, I, I definitely can understand why it has been maintained. Mm -hmm. I just read uh, a new book by uh, Jose Ciro Martinez about uh, the bread subsidy in Jordan. And one of the yeah. points that he's made in a lot of his work is about the kind of the unique connection that bread has with people, like kind of the, the, the symbolic uh, politics of it. And I know you've, you've done work on that as well. And a number of other people have. Could you talk that through a little bit as an anthropologist in terms of where the, this, this kind of the symbolic nature of, of bread and food as opposed to other commodities? Yes. Um, yes. I mean, that's a, a sort of such a wonderful book, um, Jose's book. And, it, it, you know, I think the insights he gets into the kind of production process and the sort of that real insight you get in from his work inside bakeries in Jordan is so fantastic. Um, uh, I guess my, my book sort of or my recent work has sort of traced the bread a bit more into the home. And I think when you see bread in the home, you still also can see um, just its sort of huge symbolic significance. And, you know, just to give a kind of brief uh, vignette or a brief reference that um, sort of illustrates this, I think, I remember back in 2007 and 2008, which was when I was doing the field work for my first research about water and irrigation in Egypt, but it was also a time of food crisis where there were bread shortages. And I remember talking to a man and he said to me, I couldn't bring bread for my children today. They won't have anything to eat. And I was really struck by this because he, by that, he didn't actually mean that his children wouldn't have eaten anything all day. What he meant was that without bread, their kind of, their meals would be incomplete. So there's something I think very interesting and notable about bread in terms of its uh, symbolic, symbolic significance and the kind of also material significance to people's kind of, it, it really is something that people feel um, is so sort of fundamental to make a meal whole uh, that its absence is felt in a way quite different to other foods. Remember your article a couple of years back about, about men or women actually picking up the bread at the bakery and the care that yeah. they make to make sure it doesn't get too soggy or that it's not burned. And it was a fascinating, very evocative um, way of looking at the materiality of engagement with something like bread. 
Oh, thank you. Yes. Um, um, that was something that I never sort of planned to look at. That was work I did with an Egyptian research assistant, Miriam Tahar. And um, it was just very interesting. She did this long-term ethnographic observation at bakeries in Cairo. And what we kind of observed was these, these sort of very particular ways of handling bread. And any of the listeners who've been to Cairo might have seen this, but it's very common to see people kind of with stacks of bread um, they often kind of lay them out on top of cars or on kind of pieces of material on the street. And it's all about kind of airing the bread um, to make sure it's, it doesn't get soggy so before you take it home. And I think why this is interesting um, when thinking about the bread subsidy is that often studies of the bread subsidy kind of end at the stop at the point where the bread is sold to people. You know, that's it. a bread subsidy is seen as a kind of government provision to the people. And there's a lot of work that's done on kind of how governments fulfill that, you know, provide for that subsidy and make sure that there's enough bread and things like that and where, how they pay for it. But I think not so many people have looked at, well, what happens to the bread after its point of purchase, but, you know, between that point and the point of consumption. And what this work with Miriam showed was actually how this work of care is really kind of fundamental to shaping the quality of the bread that people eat. Um, no, it's, it's, it's very interesting and it's a different, it's very much a different approach from uh, the way we also political scientists often tend to look at this sort of thing. You know, we will we'll look at, you know, would lifting the bread subsidy trigger protests? Would, could it lead to mass unrest? Uh, mm-hmm. Economists look at, you know, will it fix the, the macro financial situation? Um, but, you know, looking at how it actually affects people's lives is something quite different and, and, and the mm-hmm. meaning attached to it. Yeah. Go back to like Erica Simmons' work on and things like that uh, in political science. I think it connects very well to the kind of work you're doing. Yes, yes, absolutely. There, I mean, there are so many interesting parallels actually between, um, well, bread in other countries, but also if you think of other staples in other places. I mean, there's very interesting parallels with sort of how people feel about rice and how rice is subsidized in some certain Asian countries. Or you know, there are a lot of interesting parallels. I think. Also, how food gets attached to national identity as well. Um, this is quite interesting. Yeah, and that's, I mean, as you know, obviously listeners who are familiar with Egypt, you know, that's such a common saying in Egypt. You know, they'll talk about the particular kind of colloquial word for bread in Egypt and say, we are the only country that calls it Aish because mm-hmm. it's so central to our life. And no, that's interesting. Um, let's switch gears just a little bit um uh, I'm, I'm really interested in um you know in, in your earlier work on water and um and irrigation and the like we've been doing a lot of work um on uh, climate change lately and kind of broader mm-hmm. environmental politics and i'm curious you know if you reflect if you reflect back on the kind of the practices and uh in, in institutions that you wrote about in, in that first book um, you know, what do you see happening in Egypt these days in terms of the sustainability of water and, and grappling with things like the effects of climate change? Yeah, um, well, I suppose as a, a sort of caveat, I mean, you know, I haven't done my, my work in Egypt since that first book has been sort of has shifted focus. So I, I don't think I can say very sort of specifically, you know, I haven't gone back mm-hmm to those same interlocutors within the Ministry of Irrigation and sort of follow very exactly closely what they're doing today. My guess would be things aren't all that different from when I was there doing my fieldwork in 2007, 2008, because I think these large bureaucracies kind of take a long time to transition. Um, I mean, in terms of the impacts of climate change, there are some very interesting work going on. You know, I think obviously the increase in temperatures is a real source of concern in Egypt and 
people in the Ministry of Agriculture and working with wheat, for example, are doing a lot of work to see about breeding new varieties that can, can cope with higher temperatures. Um, but in terms of climate change, you know, I think one of the things that's always fascinated me in the Egyptian case is it's a slightly different story in terms of the impact on the water supply to other parts of the Middle East. So, you know, countries which have rain-fed agriculture or that have sort of some small rainfall, um, you know, the, the climate models pretty consistently say they're going to get drier and this is going to be very challenging for those countries. But Egypt, because so much of its water comes from the Nile, you know, it's a, it's a slightly different story because then in terms of the kind of climate change outlook, it really is about what happens in the Ethiopian highlands. Right. And in that respect, you know, there's so much uncertainty. Some climate models, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, suggest that actually rainfall could go up in that area. Um, and yeah. I, I think this is a very interesting thing to think about. And it's a slightly uncomfortable thing to think about. But mm-hmm. for those places where you know, climate change could actually bring benefits to countries. I mean, you know, it will be mediated by everything else that goes on along the Nile and what happens with the Grand, uh, the Renaissance Dam. But, you know, there is that possibility that flows in the Nile could increase in coming decades. That's interesting. And then in terms of like, you know, things like soil quality and, uh, and pollution and that sort of thing, seems like that's the sort of thing which the ministry is probably paying close attention to as well. Well, maybe. Uh, I'm not, that is not a conversation I have come across all that much. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sense has always been, but I, again, I wouldn't want to speak. It oh, sure, could well sure. be that that's just an area I haven't, you know, um, haven't heard that much. You know, it might be just the kind of parts of the bureaucracy that I've interacted with. But my sense has always been, you know, for example, with water, you know, that there is definitely an awareness that water quality is an issue. There's huge concerns about salinity, for example. Um, in certain parts of the irrigation network. But my sense has always been that quality concerns have been kind of somewhat secondary to uh, supply issues. Uh, and I think my sense is that's the case for soil quality too. You know, it's really much more the concern is about maintaining yields than thinking about kind of any potential kind of long-term impacts on soil quality of doing so. So then in terms of, you know, how you think about uh, the interconnection between the two books, basically, between the water and the wheat production, um, do you see anything like interesting that people aren't paying attention to that they should be? Yeah, you know, it's funny. um, I think I have to think a little bit more about this because actually, you know, obviously there is an important connection between the two because wheat production is all irrigated. And yet, in my work on wheat, it hasn't been a dominant factor. I think because wheat is not the most um, water intensive of winter crops. It's a winter crop and it's not the most water intensive. So actually on a kind of national level, it's not the crop that kind of is the biggest water concern. You know, A, it's not, it's grown at the time when water supply is slightly higher in the winter and B, it's not the most water needy crop. So I, I haven't seen in discussions about wheat, water isn't off, doesn't often appear as a kind of major kind of constraint factor, for example. Although they are doing some very interesting kind of trying to roll out some interesting new ways of cultivating wheat that uh, should be less water intensive. So they've started um, cultivating wheat in raised beds a bit like you cultivate onions, so planting up on ridges rather than just broadcasting seed over the fields. And that is one way to try and save water. Uh, so there are definitely are some connections, but it wasn't a dominant, it isn't kind of presented as a dominant kind of constraint factor on wheat production. Well, that's really interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of um, interconnections between kind of politics, food, water, environment, 
that I think are, you know, it's becoming more of a focus in political science, but it's still fairly marginal. Um, Mm -hmm. It it seems like in anthropology, it's more central. Yes, I think um, sort of environmental anthropologists, political ecologists have, have really sort of spent quite a lot yeah have, have worked on these kind of interconnections thinking about the environment and different kinds of resources and the politics around their use uh, that has been yeah for, for a few decades that's been quite a kind of vibrant body of study it's one of the reasons i i tend to really enjoy reading uh, reading books outside of my discipline which i probably <laughs> shouldn't say on the political science uh, middle east podcast <laughs> uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. It's a really interesting conversation. I can't wait to see your new book. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Bye.